Jesus once told a parable, and you probably are familiar with this parable. It's a parable about a farmer who goes out and he hires um, some different workers, day workers, to work on his land, in his, in his vineyards. Um, some he hired at, at sunrise, and then some he came back and he hired them at the morning coffee break, and then there was others that he came back and he hired at lunchtime, some still in the afternoon at their coffee break. And finally, there was one more group that he hired about an hour before it was quitting time. Now, everybody in that story was quite content um, with the situation until, that is, until payroll uh, comes along. And that's because those who worked just that one last hour as the sun was going down were, were given a full day's wage, just like those who had worked all day in that hot sun. I mean, everybody that day was paid the same, no matter how long or how hard they had worked. And of course, all of those, as you might expect, um, all those who worked all day, they began to grumble, right? We were in that situation. We'd probably do the same thing. And they began to grumble and, and said, and the landowner said, this isn't very fair. And the landowner responds by asking the question. He says, are you envious because I am generous? <laughs> that's our God. That's our God. That's, that's who we worship. That's who we gather to, to, to praise this morning. He is a generous God. And we've received his grace, not because, listen, not because we've toiled to earn it, but because his generosity, he has given it to us. We serve and worship and follow a generous God. Um, now, that's not just a New Testament truth. I mean, that's a, that's a, a truth um, that's... Uh, Throughout scripture, you see it. Yeah. Uh, God has been a generous God from the very beginning. I mean, you go back to the book of Genesis, back to the very beginning. You remember God, what God said to Adam and Eve there in that garden? He told them, he says, listen, you guys are free to eat of any tree or garden, uh, any tree in this whole garden except for one. Every tree but one in that garden <laughs> was made available to Adam and Eve to enjoy. Now, think about that for a moment. Every tree. Imagine the abundance in all of that. I mean, how many choices did they have? Um, you know, a fruit of, of, of different vegetables. How many, how many different options did they have that were theirs? I mean, Lunds and Byerly's has nothing on the Garden of Eden. <laughs> God's generosity was overflowing, wasn't it? Well, what does Satan do? Satan arrives on the scene and he twists God's words and he, and he tempts Eve by asking her about what she could not have. Satan, what he does is he turns God's generosity into humankind's greed. Satan knows our weaknesses, doesn't he? <laughs> um, since that very first encounter in the garden... Our fallen instinct, instincts uh, lean strongly towards 
greed. We always, right? We always want more. We always um, are seeking to gain. Um, and our fallen nature of greed, that's the exact opposite of God's nature of generosity. And that's the rub, right? God has called each of us as his children, those who belong to him, to imitate him. We are to be a visible presence of our heavenly father, to be a visible presence of our generous God to the world around us. The challenge is then, how do we do that? (laughs) How do we develop a, a generosity that becomes part of who we are, that becomes part of our our, our character. How can we show off our Heavenly Father's generosity? Um, To help us answer that, I think we need to look at a group of uh, people that were generous. In fact, it's a, a number of generous churches, we'll find out, a group of people who were imitating their Heavenly Father. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, if you've been with us, we've been going through 2 Corinthians, um, and uh, we're coming to the near the end of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, last week, if you were with us, um, we left in chapter 7 where Paul was expressing his joy over the repentance of these Corinthians, these Corinthian believers. And as a demonstration of their repentance, what Paul does now here in chapters 8 and 9, now catch this, because it's a quick transition, in chapters 8 and 9, what Paul does is he encourages them to follow through with their promise of giving, of being generous. Let me see if I can tie this in. Um, You remember, of course, the story of Zacchaeus out of the Gospel of Luke, right? Um, after Zacchaeus had experienced the amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ in his life, that tax collector, (laughs) that um, uh, low-life, cheating, despicable sinner, he declared for all Jericho to hear. He said, Behold, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it Fourfold. In other words, he was saying four times the amount that I had extorted, I'm going, to re- I'm going to return. I'm going to give them. See, what Zacchaeus realized after he came to know Christ, after salvation came to his household, Zacchaeus, who had once been mastered by a passion to get, he leaves that house mastered by a passion to give. Authentic salvation does that to us, friends. It changes us. It changes our orientation to stuff and, and, and to money. So Paul here in 2 Corinthians, because of his confidence of the repentance of these Corinthian believers, he says, hey, follow through on your promise to give. Now, let me give you a little background so you understand what's been happening here. Ten years or so before uh, this letter was written, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had agreed with the pillars in the church of uh, Jerusalem, James, you know, Peter, and John, 
that while they would go out and they would share the gospel of Jesus with the Gentiles, that they made a promise that they would also remember the poor. That they would, in other words, collect money from the Gentile churches for the poor in the church of Jerusalem. So after he had planted this church here in Corinth, he had given them, and you can look back in 1 Corinthians, um, he had given them instructions to put money aside for this collection that he would once again come back and receive to take to Jerusalem. Evidently, uh, during that, after he had left there, after he had planted that church, he had left there, they had become preoccupied with their own affairs, with the affairs of, of the church, and they hadn't followed through on those original instructions and on their original promise. So now what Paul's doing here is he's reminding them of their promise and encourages them to complete the task, to finish the job. And to help them, what he does is he holds up a model he holds up a trophy, as it were, of God's grace. Look with me at verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The grace that Paul is talking about here is the grace of giving. God's grace has been poured into these Macedonians, and they had responded to that grace in their, in their giving. I mean, that's what this section of scripture is all about. Um, it's all about the grace of giving. In fact, you'll find um, that Greek noun, charis, which means grace, that occurs um, 10 times both of these chapters, in chapters 8 and 9. In fact, the first nine verses here of chapter 8, it, that word charis occurs five times. So grace, understand this, grace undergirds this whole passage on giving. So we have to ask, well, who are these Macedonians? Um, um, you know, who are these Macedonian churches? Well, there is at least three of them um, that we can easily identify. It was uh, the church in Philippi, um, the church in Berea, and also the church in Thessalonica. Those were three churches that uh, Paul had planted on his second missionary journey. There maybe were some others, but those three churches were at least the churches he's talking about here. And there are three characteristics of, of their generosity, of the Macedonians' generosity that Paul highlights. Three traits of generosity, I think, that we can learn from. The first one is that generosity is a lifestyle. See, I think many times what we do in our culture is we buy into the lie that generosity, well, that's only for the rich, that's only for those who have, you know, so much money that they say, well, I don't know what to do with the rest of this, so I guess I'll, I'll be generous with it. <laughs> but the Macedonian example reminds us that generosity is a lifestyle also for the poor. Look with me at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, there, he's talking about the churches of Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Um, the Macedonian churches uh, were poor. The word here for poverty, it's, it's really an interesting word. Um, it's the word bathos, which means deep. 
Um, it's the word from which we get the uh, uh, bathosphere, which is one, uh, you know, a ship that goes down to the bottom of the ocean to explore the depths, the deepest depths of the ocean. The Macedonians, in other words, I mean, they were at the bottom. I mean, they were dirt poor. Now, for us here in South Minneapolis or Richfield or, or Bloomington, I mean, it's, it's a stretch to imagine what dirt poor means, must have meant in that ancient culture. I mean, we fancy ourselves poor if we think about, uh, you know, we have to think about it before we go out to dinner. <laughs> um, as for credit cards, I mean, Macedonians always left home without them. Um, you know, they had no cars. They, they, they had no vacations. They, no TVs, no cell phones. I mean, think about it. Even, even those who we would consider poor in our society have cell phones. Now, they were not only poor, but they were also experiencing, Paul tells us here, a severe test of affliction. Um, the literal idea is that they were being crushed by life. Understand the Macedonians, because they were, see, located in northern Greece, had been treated harshly by Rome. And then to add to their affliction, because they were Christ followers, the culture surrounding them was, was squeezing them harder and harder and harder. Yet in the midst of their rock-bottom nothingness, nothingness, in the midst of their, their severe test of affliction, think about it, um, they were generous. They were generous. Despite their parched existence, these squalid little churches burst forth with the joy of giving. Generosity and joy, they seem to always go together, don't they? In fact, the root of that word grace means I rejoice or I am glad. Rejoicing and gladness, that's the description of those who have a lifestyle of generosity. Second, second trait that he points out here is that generosity is a heart attitude. Look at the heart attitude that the Macedonian believers had here. Verses 3 and 4, look with me. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. <laughs> this is quite amazing when you think about it. Paul here says that they begged him to let them give. It was as though Paul was saying to them, listen, no, 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 listen. I, I don't want you to give anymore. You, you don't have to give anymore. I, I'm going to refuse to take your gifts. But they begged him to let them give. It's like they got down on their knees and were begging and pleading with Paul. Let them give. Now, strange, isn't it? To think that it was those in the church that were doing the begging, not the preacher. Strange. Why? Why were they doing that? Because the Macedonians' attitude, their heart attitude of generosity. They considered it a privilege to be part of the Jerusalem relief effort. They had an open-heartedness with their possessions and, and towards others. And that's what happens when generosity uh, motivates the heart. When grace motivates the heart, generosity is not uh, dictated by ability. 
Now, it has nothing to do with being well off. Um, it's willing. It views giving as a privilege. And it does so with joyous enthusiasm. I heard about a, a little girl who experienced a major breakthrough in her life when she learned to tie her own shoes. Instead of excitement, she was overcome by, by tears, though. Her father said, why, why are you crying? I have to tie my shoes, she said. Well, you just learned how. It, it isn't hard, is it? I know, she wailed. But I'm now going to have to do it for the rest of my life. <laughs> My hunch is that some of us feel that same way when it comes to being generous. We learn that it's exciting to give. We experience some joy in, in, in the experience of being generous. But isn't there this tiny bit of dread in us that now we discover we have to do it again over and over and over the rest of our lives? So how do we deal with that dread the answer lies in verse 5 look with me and this not as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us they gave themselves first to the Lord first to the Lord the first here doesn't mean in time it means in priority the first priorities these Macedonian believers um, had was to give themselves to the Lord. The grace of God then comes into their lives, and so they gave their lives back to God. That's the third characteristic of true generosity. It's an outflow, an overflow of God's grace in your own life. Isn't that the response the supreme act of worship Paul tells us about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Yeah, we come together to worship on Sunday, and God's pleased with that. And yes, we worship when we sing and when we praise him. God's pleased with that. But we worship most, and most importantly, when we give ourselves to him as an offering, when we offer our hearts, all that we are, all that we ever hope to be unconditionally, unreservedly to him. And that's what these Macedonians did. Now, I think that's an important lesson for us all. See, it won't do any good to give our possessions to God unless, first of all, we give ourselves. <laughs> in fact, there's a sense in which that kind of giving can, in reality, harm us. Um, when we give money without giving ourselves to God, when we give out of some other um, motivation, then we will be tempted to imagine that giving our money is enough. That somehow, that that will please God. 
giving things instead of ourselves can easily become our religion. (laughs) And then we never turn to Christ. So right now, I'm going to do something very dangerous. I didn't ask permission from our our, our council, (laughs) but I want to give you permission. If you've never given yourself to Christ, please don't give to the church. These Christ followers from Macedonia, they were generous first because they had given themselves to the Lord. And everything else flowed out of that. They gave themselves first, Lord, and then by the will of grace to us, he says. They gave their lives and hearts to God, and then they gave themselves to others. The Philippian church showed its love of Paul by sending a monetary gift to him. You read about it in Paul's letters, the church of Thessalonica, how he, he, he communicated or commended them for the love they had for one another because out of their love for Christ, out of their giving themselves to Christ, they were able to love one another. These churches were generous towards Paul and others a result of God's grace in their own lives. Paul then moves from giving us an example to then presenting us with a challenge. He says, follow the example of the Macedonians. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul says to these Corinthians believers, hey, finish what you promised to do. Give what you had committed to give. See, Paul isn't after his money so much as he wants them to come to completion. He wants them to come to a a full maturity. You have to remember who Paul's writing to. This, this is a, a church that is incredibly gifted. I mean, you, you read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? There are gifts all over the place in that church. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness. But they evidently didn't excel in this grace of giving. Despite all of their exceptional qualities, Paul says, hey, guys, you're incomplete. You're immature. And he wants them to grow in this grace of giving. Which brings us to another, I think, major lesson in this this passage for us. There is no way for anyone to grow into full maturity without committing their finances to the Lord. As I've said, Jesus can have our money and still not have our hearts. But he cannot have our hearts (laughs) without our money. I mean, it was Jesus that said, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Some of you, (laughs) my guess is you've reached a sticking point in your spiritual growth. You feel like you're, you're stuck. This place, plateau. You're stuck because you have not begun to give as the scripture has been directing you. 
It's too hard, you say. You know, I, I've, I have too many obligations. Um, you know, I'll, I'll begin to give when, when, when I get that full-time job or, 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 or when I get that credit card paid off or, or, or after I buy that car that I've always wanted. I'll begin to give when, when my children are done with school or when I get that, that, that raise, you know, that next big raise. I say, yes, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> but you'll not be able to get unstuck until you give him your whole self, including your finances, including your treasures. Now, Paul is helpful here for us, I think. I want you to notice his approach here in verse 8. Look what he says here. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul says, listen, I'm not, I'm not giving you a command. No, um, uh, you know, I, although I have the authority to do so, Paul says, you know, I'm going to waive my right to exercise that authority. Instead, Paul, what he does is he's attempting to spur them on through this, this friendly competition. <laughs> um, Paul says, all I'm doing is describing to you the great grace of the giving of the Macedonian churches. So, that, you know, you might want to consider doing the same. So that you might want to consider your affluent situation compared to their poverty, their trials, and you might decide, you know what? We need to do the same. It's a beautiful, gentle, competitive challenge that Paul gives here. Paul has made his point, but I got to tell you, there's still one more motivational tool that Paul has in his toolbox. We need to follow the example of Jesus. Look with me at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. <laughs> Jesus Christ was rich. He was rich, incredibly rich. I mean, these words, what they do is they, they take us to eternity past before Bethlehem. Um, and before Bethlehem, he was essentially and eternally rich, rich in glory, rich in love, rich in power. But he became poor. He was born in a stable. I mean, the poorest of conditions. And though he had created the world he lived without a place to even call his own the ground was his couch and the trees were his his roof and the wind was his comb why would he become poor for our sake so that you and i might be rich in spirit so that you and i might have the extraordinary privilege of being able to say, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. That's the grace of giving lodged in eternity. See, the Macedonians, they weren't forced into giving by some gimmicks or, or, or fear or, or, or guilt. Their giving instead came because they recognized the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
in their own lives. And Christ's example should result in us being eager, having an eager willingness to give. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Look what he says here. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. See, God's focus... God's focus, friends, is is on the heart. And God's desire is willing hearts that eagerly give according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. It reminds me of the story of the poor widow, doesn't it? Out of the Gospel of Mark. Remember her? Jesus was sitting there uh, in the temple with his disciples And he was watching as rich person after rich person, wealthy person after wealthy person came by, um, you know, the the offering box and dropped these large amounts of money in that offering box, looking around to see who else was watching. Unimpressed, though. Jesus says nothing. But then along came this poor widow. Nothing to her name but two small copper coins. She drops both of them in that offering box. And nobody else notices except for Jesus. And Jesus immediately points to her and says, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Incredible, isn't it? Although she was poor in resources, she was rich in her willingness to share from what she possessed. That's the attitude that Jesus is commending. That's the attitude that Paul is encouraging. And it comes back to Jesus' example. God's grace is the ultimate motivation Forgiving. And friends, when you really get down to it, there must be no other motivation. Because of God's love, we have all received grace. Grace upon grace. Grace heaped upon grace. So giving is a matter of grace. We give ourselves back to him. We give ourselves to others. And and, and this includes our giving what we have with an, with an eager willingness. Grace giving is fundamentally an overflow, outflow of God's grace. Churches in northeastern India, in the state of Mizoram, have a beautiful phrase to express the way that they give to God. Bufai tham. It means one handful of rice at a time. One handful of rice at a time. Here's how it works. Families in the church set aside a portion of rice at every meal for God. And when they collect enough of that rice, then they donate it. They take it over to their local church. And then the church turns around and sells that rice in order to generate income. Back in 1914, when this practice started in some of these churches, 
they used the sale of rice and they raised just $1.50 in U.S. dollars. But now, after 100 years, in 2013, it has grown to the place where these believers, these Christian believers, who are the poorest of the poor in India, collect over $1.5 million as they support 1,800 missionaries in addition to supporting their local churches. People have started also giving in more creative ways and just, just a handful of rice. They give uh, vegetables and they give firewood and they give other resources that flow into the church's outreach for the kingdom of God. One church leader said this, there are many ways of serving the Lord. Some people do great things. Some people are great preachers. Some people contribute lots and lots of money. But when we talk about this handful of rice, it's very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen where nobody sees, but God knows, and he blesses it. Another church member said, it is not out of our riches or our poverty that makes us serve the Lord, but our willingness. So we Mizo people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. Friends, I pray that each one of us here this morning, that we might grow <laughs> in that kind of life of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace. Grace demonstrated in, although you were rich, you became poor. You went to the cross. You gave your life for us so that we might become rich in your grace. Lord, might we live out, demonstrate what that looks like, the character of our Heavenly Father in our own lives. His grace to us, Lord, might it pour over into the grace we give to others. In your son's precious name, amen.